Hello, I'm Alice Murray, editor of The Drawdown. Uh, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Trevor McCucky, who's the executive director at MUFG Investor Services, as well as head of debt services. Today we are exploring direct lending, which has obviously come a long way in a relatively short period of time. Uh, and today's discussion, we're going to be looking at its early days following the retrenchment of the banks in response to the 20, uh, 2008 downturn. And then we'll move on to explore the ways in which direct lending has developed across different regions, namely the US, Europe and APAC. And then finally, we'll consider the market's current condition with the onset of advanced technologies, big data and increased demand from investors. Trevor, hello, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me. Hello, Alice. Thank you very much for having me. My absolute pleasure. Um, okay, so prior to 2008, there were very few direct lending funds in the market. So can you tell us a bit about what the debt market looked, back, looked like back then and how things started to change during that time? Yeah, absolutely. So if we look at kind of loans in particular, 2007 was actually a bumper year for CLO's origination. You know, like I think it was somewhere up around 160 billion globally was launched in 2007 alone in CLO's. Um, you roll on to beginning of 2008, we would have seen a bit of spillover from those um, 2007 launches actually start, you know, like and launch properly. Post kind of say February, March 2008, it pretty much went down to zero. There was the odd CLO here or there that kind of initiated for one reason or another, but very much it stayed flat for 2008, 9, 10, and started to make a bit of a comeback for in 2011 on. Um, main reasons for that was that at the time, if you wanted a big institutional style loan, you went to a bank, it was pure and simple. The concept of direct lending, it was there in pockets, depending on who you were talking to. People might say they had a lot to do with direct lending pre-2008, but the vast majority of people would have seen the likes of products like CLOs, where they were literally getting syndicated bank debt and putting it into portfolios and running the, the SPVs that way. Um, so the interesting thing about CLOs is that back in 2007, when a lot of these loans were originated, at the time, CLOs, what we call CLO 1.0, um, would have had a life cycle of about seven to 10 years, which meant that 2013-14 was a big kind of refinancing cliff for the CLO platform anyway, because we would have seen a big drop off around 2007, end of 2007, 2008. Um, and then we would have seen deals being wound up over the course of 2012, 13, 14 on. Um, and everybody was holding the breath to see what would happen, the asset class at that stage. Now, as we all know, at that time, we would have seen a lot of uh, syndicated bank loans amend and extend and go through complicated restructures and that, all that kind of stuff. But from that, we would have seen as well the ECB and the European Union kind of come down heavy on banks saying, look, you're over leveraged, you can't. You have to deleverage a bit. You can't spend money the way you were doing it and lend money out the way you were doing it pre-2008. So that kind of left this open door for somebody to come in and fill that void. What we would have seen at the beginning were very few lenders, but lenders who knew the loans market were raising enough capital to be able to give bigger and bigger styled loans. 
initially there would have been say 25 to 100 million then over time we would have seen them rapidly kind of grow to kind of rival a lot of the mezzanine level debt that we see out there in the institutional bank debt world you know like we're talking about half a billion plus loan in loan individual loans um at that stage because there were so many lenders looking or borrowers looking for money and so many few uh lenders we would have seen the that the interest rates etc would have been quite high so it wouldn't have been unusual at that stage to see interest rates go up over say 15 20 percent in some cases um which seems ridiculous now but at the time it was really the only way to get credit you know <laughs> like so over time over the, the preceding say eight years you would have seen the asset class kind of mature in its own right Naturally enough, a lot more lenders wanted to get in on the action and a lot more borrowers were looking for solutions for the problems, i.e. the world keeps turning, you know, like so. Whereas the syndicated bank debt is still a huge part of the industry. Um, we did see this very healthy direct lending uh portion asset class come out out of the the phoenix of the flames if you like of 2012-13 during all that restructure and kind of deleveraging that we saw with the banks um along with those we would have seen support industries grow so the funded min had to get used to looking at direct lending asset classes as opposed to having systems that were focused purely towards syndicated loans um you know we would have seen boutique firms set up to do the loan agency role which is normally taken on by the lead arranging bank in the CL and the syndicated loan. Um, so we would have seen a few changes like that coming along the way. As the we started to get more and more lenders into the market, we would have seen the balance shift both in terms of the interest rate coming down and normalizing, if you like. Now, that being said, it's still up around like high single digits and sometimes into the multiple digit digits at this stage. Um, but it's kind of become this normal way of for large institutions to get loans to be able to conduct their business for whatever reason. Um, so what we have now is a case where just pre-COVID, we could see borrowers getting that kind of little bit of extra power where we saw things like Covenant Light come into uh, lexicon, you know, like something that we never thought of before where borrowers were going, I like the terms you're giving, but somebody will take less covenant restrictions down the road. I'll go and talk to those people, you know, like so that's kind of one way of seeing it kind of normalizing and, you know, just a healthy proportion of lenders and borrowers out there in the market that we could actually see this become settling down. People were going, they were shopping around as you'd expect. Um, what we saw then was, if we kind of roll it back a little bit, a lot of this would have been kicked off and originated in Europe because the ECB um, deleveraged. The US is a different story. The US very much had a, a healthy direct lending kind of appetite anyway, but they've really exploited it over those eight years. You know, like it started to, to, to grow as the nucleus in Europe kind of started. The US market caught onto it quickly and started to grow so much so that I'm seeing a lot more deal, deals come up in regions outside of America itself. So a lot more Canadian direct lending, South American direct lending came on. Areas that were traditionally hard to even see too much coming in the way of syndicated bank debt, you know, like in the world stage and in the likes of CLO products, you very rarely saw these regions actually 
have any syndicated loans of note um, in the portfolios of CLOs. Um, so if we look then probably to the APAC region, we see a kind of different story from Europe and the US. So traditionally the APAC region would have invested into loans that were more global in nature. So European and US loans a lot more than local. Um, around 2013-14, I first experienced direct lending in a big way in Australia when we saw that the Australian government were going to a lot of the like superannuation funds and pension funds and that saying, you know, like we'd really like to deploy cash in Australia rather than it going into investing into offshore products, you know, like and in different regions and that. And from that, it kind of, we saw Australia grow rapidly into the huge industry it is for direct lending at the moment. Um, and so as that happened, it's not alone. We would have seen it happen in New Zealand and in some of the bigger countries then, if you look at Japan and China and India and that, all starting to get more and more into this asset class. Um, one of the probably harder things to do with the APAC region is for a lot of investors is to get their heads around what the tax and the legal implications for, for doing loans in a lot of the individual countries. So if you think of it like, Europe's got the EU, America effectively is one big country, you know, like um, we've got sophisticated laws and legal systems and that to protect borrowers and lenders for that matter. And they have very definite tax rules. Um, if you look at around say Southeast Asia and that, people just don't know the market. It's not that I'm saying that they might find that the legal protection isn't there. It's just people don't know, so they're a little bit more cautious about going into some of the regions and some of the countries. They don't have this overarching, you know, like parent looking over them like you would have with the ECB, for example, and with the Fed over in the US. So that kind of saw a lag a little bit in the APAC region, which has since speeded up. I mean, the APAC region itself at the moment for direct lending is on fire. You know, like everybody wants a bit of the action. It's become very mainstream. People are looking at good opportunities, you know, pooling in funds together and getting the job done. Um, so I think whereas Europe and the US have kind of are mature and are there, like the APAC region in particular is set to just double and double again over the next few years. You know, like, so I think globally you're expecting direct lending to double over the next five years. But a lot of that, the help from that will be from the APAC region as it just gets more strong, stronger as people get used to investing in different countries, getting their heads around the like legal implications and the pitfalls that they have to look for in these countries and regions that, you know, like once they kind of get that done, all of a sudden then they've got a framework to go and start investing en masse where the capital is needed with the, the peace of mind that they'd be able to, you know, like navigate their way through all the, the red tape as such. Yeah. And I guess that's not too dissimilar from how private equity, I mean, obviously private equity has grown over a much longer time period, but certainly when we look at the APAC region, it's leapfrogging um, what US and, and Europe did in terms of how those markets step by step developed. Yeah. Suddenly now you've got this big, massive, growing PE market and, and VC 
Um, yeah. But a lot, a lot of that was down to US and European houses going over and, you know, being yeah. able to take that clout. Is, have we seen the same one with, with direct lenders? We have to a certain degree, like all the big institutions that you could name off have got a presence predominantly in Australia, if not in Singapore, Hong Kong at the moment, you know, like and they really are tapping into the market. But we are seeing a lot of homegrown firms now come into the direct lending asset class in, in the region. You know, like I know I, I keep mentioning Australia, but it's just huge there at the moment. We've got a good client base coming out of the Australian market, you know, like there's we and we see that there's more and more potential and they're growing as they kind of on one hand they have to get away from the coal and fossil fuel industry that they have, you know, like and they're moving towards more ESG and kind of greener solutions and all that kind of stuff. They still have a lot of that industry still needs to be serviced by loans, you know, like and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's huge. They're tapping into the the market properly now in the likes of Australia over the last eight or nine years, where direct lending is synonymous with any other asset class in the region. Um, so much so that we are seeing yeah, not just the stalwart global companies that we all know, but a lot of, you know, Australian based, Australian originated companies that are looking to actually open up funds and trade in direct lending. Cool. Okay, good. All right. So um, let's think about them more recently. And I guess, you know, very few conversations we can have today that that don't mention uh, that what's going on in the past 18 months. Um, what, yeah, how, how did that affect the direct lending market? And I think, I think what's of particular interest here is, is the Covlite um, yeah. terms. Certainly I spoke to some uh, GPs in the past. Well, I mean, I speak to GPs every day. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke to them about their direct um, lenders and whether or not, you know, the dream of Covlite, because surely that's what it was built for, is, is for times like this where... You didn't have those um, demanding, well, those demands on them, and it would give you headroom to to, to go through a difficult patch. Is is that what really played out? Is that what happened? Yeah, to very much so. You know, like I mean, the focus kind of shifted off the likes of Cov Light, but the loan still went on. You know, like where there's companies were fundamentally sound. A lot of the the lenders knew this. You know, like and were kind of going right. We've got faith in the con the company. We want more of a partnership rather than the traditional part of a syndication when a loan goes distressed or whatever, that they're able to sell it and move off and wash their hands of it, you know, like or hope that the the asset actually comes back again. With direct lending, there's a very kind of like nice bond between the lenders and the borrowers at the same time where everybody wants it to succeed you don't go into sarcastically into issuing loans in the hundreds of millions and hope that something goes wrong with the covenants you know <laughs> like um so we saw we saw that partnership very much take hold as people looked at fundamentals as i said the companies and said fundamentally the sound the strategy is good okay the world's going through um turmoil at the moment with this pandemic even back then they didn't know how long it would last 
Now, that kind of got overlaid a little bit with caution, naturally enough. So we would have seen in 2020 fewer deals than expected actually deploy capital or look at dry powder and try and recycle it or whatever. You know, like, um, but it, it, it only pretty much knocked everything down the road, say, by six months, maybe eight months. We did see those loans that we were talking about in early 2020 actually come to fruition and launch. Um, just a little bit later than predicted. So much so now that, as you say, the worlds keep turning, it's kind of normalized again. We are seeing like conversations start up over the last couple of months around Covenant Light and stuff like that, which to me is a great sign of recovery. You know, like you're kind of going, they're getting back to what they're actually designed to do and what they want to do when they start talking to each other, as opposed to we need to make sure that we can get through the next six months the best we can or the next year the best we can, you know, like, so we're kind of seeing a lot of stability come back in, in terms of thinking. So the asset class, even though it's been growing and growing and growing, I think it's that confidence in it has just been growing with it, which is kind of helping the whole story along. Like even at the beginning of COVID, there was no panic in the air. Now, from looking at CLOs and that back in 2011, 12, once they started coming out of the reinvestment period, we saw deals getting called a lot by the note holders. We would have seen a lot of amend and extend and restructures and a lot of tests failing, you know, like because the ratings had dropped so low or the price had dropped so low. And you could feel that kind of nervousness in the air. I think it was a lot more mature in the direct lending space during the COVID period where people just got on with it. You know, like, as I say, the reasons for loans and the reasons for borrowers going looking for capital might have shifted slightly, but the asset class kept going and it's still going and it's still growing. And it's kind of proved itself out that direct lending is here to stay, you know, which is why when we see figures coming out saying we're expecting direct lending to double in value over the next five years, you can actually see that that makes sense given the climate that we're in, you know, like given that, not only are the European banks still deleveraged in the US banks, but we even see it in the APAC region where traditionally they would have fended a little bit better in 2008 than the European banks, certainly, you know, like, but risks, risk appetites are coming into banks, you know, like there's more and more legislation, there's, you know, less appetite for having a lot of risk in the portfolio. We see the direct lending market come in to the mezzanine level that and subordinated level and kind of grab onto that you know like and see the kind of returns that make it very the high yield that makes it very popular as an asset class whether they're standalone debt portfolios or whether they're thrown into multi-strategy you know like funds in a lot of the way it doesn't it doesn't really like have an effect because it's all just churning away the way it should do you know so we can see that the asset class itself is strong and growing. It mixes well with other assets. And yeah, it's here to say, stay. Good. All right. There was, I mean, I think prior to COVID, certainly there were, because this asset class grew so quickly uh, and it was very much like we've been speaking about, it was in reaction to the banks deleveraging and retrenching. There were certainly concerns in the market that 
it, that, that growth wouldn't be sustainable or more that the, the returns that those early managers were forecasting and, and bringing in just wouldn't be able to hold and that you know what happens if the banks come back um you know you you seem very confident that this market will continue to grow and it's and it's going to increase in value but are you um as confident in them being able to maintain the level of returns that they're bringing in at the moment I think so. You know, like, I mean, as we kind of discussed, there were crazy returns at the beginning because there were so few lenders who really knew the asset class, you know, like, and were in a position to be able to go and start lending out. That, as we kind of discussed, did normalize over the years, you know, like, will the rates come further down? I, I, I reckon they will, you know, like, I don't think it's going to be this cash cow of high single digit into double digits forever. Um, but like when we talk about direct lending as an individual asset, we must remember that syndicated loans and bank originated debt is still huge in comparison, you know, like so I think the banks are still doing what they're doing on the the, the bank debt syndicated loans kind of side as well. And they're happy that kind of falls into their risk matrix, et cetera, you know, like so I think that between the borrowers and lenders actually getting to know each other better and to, to normalize this process and talk to each other. Like borrowers and lenders will build up a rapport with each other to keep this going, to keep out of the bank sphere, if you like, you know, like, I mean, that's one way it's here to stay. It's brand loyalty and recognition that we've worked with these people, whether you're on the lending or the borrowing side, you know, like, we got the job done. We knew when there was a bit, of, if there was any turbulence, I were able to get through it as opposed to, you know, like going necessarily to the banks all the time. So I do think that, as I say, it's predicted to get bigger, um, you know, like, but I do think that the weight of what's happening is, there is enough to carry it forward and to see that growth actually come true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly um, the idea of, of, being a real partnership we, you know that was what we used to see how the banks used to act um, on the p side and and uh, i'm sure they're still certainly being good partners but there's definitely a level of displacement and we yeah we, we can certainly see that the direct lenders um really wanting those long-term relationships with the gps um so yeah um okay so now obviously this is a um we're talking, you know, coming from the drawdown, we want to touch on operations. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and I think a key part, certainly in recent analyses and investigations that we've done, where we're looking at, at private credit and private debt managers, has been, you know, questioning whether or not their operational setup has been able to keep up with the rapid growth. I mean, it's it would be amazing if it had done. So what's your your take? And, and obviously you've got a very privileged view um, on this. What's your take on where these managers are, broadly speaking, in terms of their operations? So we're seeing a lot, like naturally enough, if you have a system that you've been relying on for the last 15, 20 years, it's not going to keep up with the complexity of direct lending. You know, so a lot of the, the earlier systems that I would have used were designed for syndicated bank debt 
they're very good at capturing syndicated bank debt. But if something tricky or new came into the equation that you'd often see with direct lending, because it's such a private loan, it's a very private asset class in its own right uh, between borrowers and lenders, you know, like they kind of um, have these bespoke elements to them. And you need a system that is flexible nowadays. You know, like, I mean, the world is very flexible in terms of the amount of apps you can find, you know, like, and what you can do with your mobile phone. There's no reason in the world why institutions, whether it's on the admin or the management side, can't have the best of breed platforms. Um, you know, so we still do see a lot of managers coming our way who who are saying, We've got still are still using legacy platforms, whether it was inbuilt or whether it's spreadsheet or whether it's an application that they bought off the shelf and have developed. And it's so ingrained in the way they do things. It's actually a big step, especially with direct lending, to step back, tear it all apart, rebuild it, you know. So we do see a lot of more established managers coming to us with that looking at stuff through that lens and we're able to kind of go through our experience of talking to the different vendors out in the market what to expect from each individual one etc as well as show them the success we've had from keeping up to date with data making sure we have a dedicated platform that can look after the direct lending asset class you know so if we get something new we can have it coded in as opposed to sending it downstream and waiting for three six months for it to get to come back to you from a developer you know it's the same with reporting everybody wants bespoke reporting to fit into their systems and how they like to see it nowadays that's a whole lot easier because you can do it yourself on a lot of the newer platforms as opposed to you know like going back to the vendor themselves and saying can you build a report to this specification um so we're seeing an awful lot of that with the traditional managers where their biggest problem isn't that they don't understand loans, it's just to keep up with the growth, they need a better platform. You know, like, I mean, especially if they're coming at and towards us with an inbuilt system or Excel where they're going, inbuilt system just can't take the, the weight that we have on the direct lending. The, you know, like the older systems that we have just can't handle the complexity. So we've kind of got that side of the coin with technology. And we balance that off a lot with the newer lenders in the market who might not necessarily traditionally have been in the direct lending space. So a lot of the time with people like that, it's introducing them to the platforms. It's showing demos saying, this is what we can and do. This is what your portfolio looks like when we put it up and you can drill down and see some neat stuff on our, you know, and how we can collate your data, how we can capture your data, how we can move on. Um, you know, like and make sure we get all the life cycle and asset maintenance events, you know, that are important to you. So much so that we'd often talk to clients about a business process outsourcing arm as well, where we'll come in and help you run your platforms and make sure that you can get that intellectual capacity from MUFG investor services side into your business to be able to do a lot of the work on your platforms, help you like kind of flesh them out, show you how to use them if they're ones that we have, you know, a line of sight on how to use them better and some of the tricks that we've learned, you know, like and stuff like that. And really kind of become, the, again, it's down to that partnership level of trusting that we can look after the loans in a middle office point, point from a middle office point of view, as well as from a pure administration point of view. Um, and managers like that, you know, like, I mean, 
some things are hard. They look at likes of, you know, looking at all the documents that they've spent a long time looking at and then visualizing what that looks like when you put it up on a platform and it just normalizes then as a loan that you're looking at day to day waiting for a notice to come in of an event and make sure that things keep moving, tracking your covenants, you know, like make sure you know when they're coming up, make sure that you're looking at your industries and countries and all that kind of attribute stuff and you're capturing stuff that's important to you for the matrices that you might be using it um and then knowing well that if we're doing say the fund admin side that all that information has been captured correctly and is able to you know be fed downstream to more nav producing systems out there you know like so that you don't lose anything transferring from one platform to another which was a huge part of the MUFG psyche was to make sure that like once we kind of captured it, it flows through the platforms seamlessly. Everybody's updated. Everybody knows what's happening. And if there are queries that we know where it originated, it can come back to a debt services team. You know, depend regardless of the region, we can have a look at it, fix it up, solution out and go again. Or if needs be, if we can keep an eye on the line of sight on what the agent is doing and the manager as well as ourselves, we're able to spot differences and debate them through and kind of discuss to figure out why one party thought one thing was the true version of events and another party thought the, the, the next was, you know, like, so it's it's become a very key part of the, the value add chain is our technology and how we can play that back to both managers and agents and any third party that's kind of involved with the loan um, it is a lot more of a partnership than uh, straightforward the only function that I have is to make sure that all the figures are correct so when I pass them down they go into a nav and the nav comes out correctly um, it has developed a whole lot more into a growth area where we can go in talk to clients sit with them you know like um, if needs be point them towards vendors let them go and talk to if you and do their own analysis and that. So it's quite cool seeing how that's evolved. It's probably one of the great things that's evolved over the last 10, 15 years is the value of the admin sitting in the middle of a lot of these processes. Yeah, I, I can completely imagine the complexity. I mean, obviously we know the complexity in operations of, across all private capital funds is, is just grown exponentially. Um, but the amount of data that needs to flow through a debt fund on a daily basis as well is phenomenal. And so yeah. having, yeah, so having a partner that um, can support you with that and, and let you get on with your, you know, actually the core function deploying, deploying the funds is, um, is going to be invaluable. Yeah. And we're only seeing that growing. I mean, over the years, I've kind of kept a good eye on machine learning and natural language processing and stuff like that. But you can see it developing more and more into and getting itself into a position where a lot of the like credit agreement and legal docs that we look at can be 200 pages long, you know, like, so we're trying to get, pick out the key data on that independently substantiated, get a model on our platforms, make sure that matches with what the client and the agent have in terms of what we expect the deal to be doing. That hopefully is going to see a lot, become a lot more the norm now that we can have machine learning look and pick out a lot of the data points and then just substantiate them and verify them on our platform as opposed to having people trying to figure out 
you know, like where what the maturity date is on an asset. Because you must remember, like a lot of these documents will not give you maturity date as an actual date. They'll say it's like 96 months after the initial drawdown and then you look at initial drawdown and that'll have another term you know <laughs> like so it's not like we're just going in saying when will this loan mature in 15 years great we'll put that onto the platform at this date or whatever there's a lot more behind the scenes interpreting of documents that we're, we're, we're seeing the world just embrace a whole lot more and hopefully that's one way we as a, a loans industry can actually jump forward a good bit in terms of scalability and how we can manage a lot of the growth that's coming into the market over the next, you know, five years. Fab. Okay. Yeah. I mean, where isn't AI and machine learning going to transform yeah, yeah. what we're doing? Okay. So, I mean, you've, you've, we're kind of thinking here about, about the future. This would be a nice place to wrap up. Um, so you've talked there about, you know, throughout the conversation, we've talked about that the asset class has still got long legs um, plenty of, of room to grow and specifically in regions like uh, APAC. Um, technology is certainly on the agenda and there's some exciting stuff happening with machine learning. Have you got any other kind of um, key predictions or, or crystal ball gazing that, um, that you predict for this, for this asset class in the, um, in the next 12, 18 months? I suppose the big thing we're looking at is like, the APAC region is just going to get huge, as we say. We see Europe and the US are still giants in this space. You know, like the US has got such a big industry at the moment. We're seeing a lot of growth. As I say, you know, like a lot of it is away from the traditional centers. So we're seeing this kind of turn more global. So traditionally, all my, like the people I'd be talking about when I was looking at lenders would be New York based. You know, like we've got clients spread all over the US and beyond, you know, like we've got, as we kind of mentioned, I've got clients in Canada and South America and that it's just getting easier as we probably get used to working remotely and not necessarily sitting in offices and all that kind of stuff to see loans come from a lot of regions and a lot of countries that traditionally wouldn't have had access to this asset class before. So I think the next like 12, 18 months are going to see the... It, loans go exponential in terms of the global presence simply because of technology giving us a high touch in terms of where we're working how we're digesting all this data and what we want ultimately to do with it super okay so like a decentralization um of, of the asset class um embracing remote work from anywhere culture um super all right well look trevor Excellent. this has been um fantastic feel like I've really got to grips with private debt and what's happened. Um, so thank you very much for joining me. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Alice. And thank you for listening.